in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. We're going to be talking about Buddhism, and we're going to do it in one week. I figure we either have two, almost two short sermons, or one that's just a little bit on the long side. So I figured we'd do just one. Um, and I want, you know, it's really important as a writer, I know it's really important to mention your sources. So today, we were going to be pulling an inordinate amount from this book, which is actually what I teach world religions from. It's by Charles Far- Farhadian. Uh, introducing world religion. So normally I just maybe cite a scholar here or there in a sermon and I won't specifically mention them. I'll just say, you know, one scholar says this or that, but we'll be pulling a lot from this book. So I wanted to mention it, uh, partly so I don't get into trouble, uh, in case anyone were to, you know, hunt me down later and be like, you pulled this from a textbook. Uh, so a lot of our, a lot of our material is coming from that. They say, if you're a pastor, do not put your sermons online because the people who like listening to your sermons aren't going to listen to them after three or four, five, six months. But your enemies, they will listen to every single one because they're going to try to bury you. Uh, so all of my sermons are online, so maybe that's not the, the wisest of me. Okay, uh, so let me open with this story. About 500 years before Christ, there was a boy born in northern India, in what's now uh, southern Nepal, and he was born into the Kshatriya caste, which if you remember from our Hinduism sermon sermons, that is the second highest caste. So you have your Brahmins, your priests, your sort of sages, and then you have your warrior, noble, king class. He was born into that class. Uh, it is said that he was born... Uh, of a virgin, which is interesting that we are not the only people on earth that, that claim that we have a great spiritual leader born of a virgin. And he grew up as a wealthy prince surrounded by luxury. And I wonder sometimes, I would love to dig into this, maybe you guys can Google it and figure it out. I wonder sometimes if the character of Jasmine from the movie Aladdin wasn't partly, in a small way, inspired uh, by this, this young boy uh, named Siddhartha because Siddhartha was not allowed to leave the palace. He was this rich prince born to luxury and he was not allowed to leave the palace because his father wanted to protect him from the suffering that he would see. But when Siddhartha grows up, he wants to see what's out there and what's outside the palace walls. And so he has these debates and goes back and forth with his father. The father is a good man and wants to give the son what he's asking for. Uh, but he doesn't want to expose him to suffering. So what he does is he stages this scene outside the palace. He's like, fine, we'll bring you outside the palace, but he stages it so it's not as nice as inside the palace, but it's still not the full reality of what Indian life was uh, back then. And so he stages, you know, kind of peaceful, happy scenes, and the son figures it out. So finally, the son and father, Siddhartha and his father, go back and forth debating even more, And uh, the father finally loses. The son prevails in this little debate. And Siddhartha decides to leave the palace to see what it's really like. Now, this is probably mostly a true story, but with all historical, mythical stories, you get some embellishments. So he sees four things outside the palace. And I think the first one is a bit of an embellishment. I think the others are are probably true. So this first one, uh, it says he leaves. First, he leaves with uh, his chariot, and he has someone driving him in front, his charioteer. Remember last week, we talked about the Bhagavad Gita in Hinduism, that this is a common trope in Eastern religion, that in order to get into wisdom literature, you have a ruler talking with their driver, their charioteer. We still see that uh, today in some ways. Uh, I think, uh, what was that movie that won Best Picture a few years ago? The Green, Green, do you guys remember what it is? Uh, anyone? 
green green something i don't know it was a it was sort of a it was like a race related movie uh with like a wealthy or sort of a really important black uh, pianist and then a white driver who was more blue collar like beat him up kind of guy and you so still you have the same kind of thing this relationship between a what's it the green book the green book that's what it is um and so they still this formula still works like you're trying to get at societal issues and you have this sort of you know, wealthy, privileged, talented person, and then you have the driver up front. And their relationship is able to show you things about the reality of society in a way that maybe other kinds of relationships aren't. Okay, thank you for that. I was like, I thought it would come right to me, but it, it did not. Okay, uh, so he leaves the palace, and this first thing I think is a bit embellished. embellished. He sees a man terribly suffering from old age, and it says Siddhartha is shocked by his white hair, his walking stick, his hunched over nature, and his limbs and fingers that are sort of, you know, bent and, and crooked. Now, I think this is a bit embellished because even in the palace, with all these, you know, courtiers coming in and out and all of these other foreign relations, I'm imagining that he would have seen other elderly people, or at least people close to this stage in life. But either way, he sees uh, a sort of extreme old age and the suffering that comes from it, and he's very impacted by that. Sorry, I just used that as a verb, but sometimes you, you have to. Um, all right, so... Uh, Moving on, this is where I think it leaves some of the embellishment and gets more, um, maybe a, a true telling of exactly what happened. So after this old man, he sees uh, something else. Oh, sorry, he asks the driver about the old man. And the driver explained that this site was old age. And he explains it. The ravisher of beauty, the ruin of vigor, the cause of sorrow, and the bane of memories. And with great surprise, Siddhartha exclaimed, what? Will this evil come to me also? Yes, old age strikes us all down alike. This is one of the reasons I think it's a bit em embellished, because, you know, a 20-year-old man would probably know what old, old age is and also know that he's headed there someday as well. But that's part of this story and the way it's told. Uh, so then he keeps going. Uh, this, I, like I said, is not, I don't think, embellished. This is when the true story starts coming in. He sees a sick man afflicted by disease. Now, I have, I have read a lot of world scripture, and this, to me, is one of the truest depictions of sickness, or sort of uh, most emotionally true depictions of suffering that I've ever seen. So Siddhartha is talking to the, his charioteer, and he says, Yonder man with a swollen body, his whole frame shaking as he pants, his arms and shoulders hanging loose, his body all pale and thin, uttering plaintively the word mother when he embraces a stranger. Who, pray, is this? Then the charioteer explains disease and sickness, and he explains that this has made even this formerly strong man no longer the master of himself. Like I said, I've read a lot of world scripture, and to see that devastating of a paragraph all at once, describing those symptoms in such a viscerally real way, and then saying, yes, this once great man is no longer master of himself. It's not very often that you run into almost this sort of short story-like punch in the gut right within uh, a famous world scriptural passage. So uh, the charioteer reveals this news that, yes, this sickness and disease also happens to many. And then he goes on and sees a third thing. He sees a corpse, a dead man, being carried by the side of the road. And he is taught that no matter your caste, your wealth, your pedigree, that that future of being a corpse carried by others awaits him as well. So Siddhartha starts to wonder. He's like, well, what is the point if I'm looking at old age, disease, being a corpse? And then he meets a fourth 
person or sees a fourth sight. And it is a sannyasi. Uh, some translations call this person a beggar, but this is just a terrible translation because we have a certain association with a beggar that a Hindu would not. Um, so remember, Buddhism comes out of Hinduism, so he's a Hindu at this point. Just like we're Christians, but Jesus was a Jew, right? So as a religion branches off of another, he's coming from a background of Hinduism. And this sannyasi is not a beggar, but think of this as a Hindu sage or a Hindu monk who has renounced all possessions on this earth. So think of a minimalist on steroids, okay? I just like that phrase. Think of a minimalist on steroids. They live like a beggar, but by choice. It's not that they have to. They choose to live with absolutely no possessions and no claim on this world outside of maybe an item or two of clothing. They seek to dissociate themselves. Did you guys know, by the way, that disassociate and dissociate is like they're equal equal terms. You can say disassociate or dissociate. I just learned that this week as I was writing this sermon. I'm like, is it disassociate or dissociate? Same thing. Okay, so <laughs> sometimes the dictionary is like Brits prefer this and Americans, but no, just the same, same thing. Okay, uh, they seek to dissociate themselves as much as possible with the illusion that is around them. They call it maya. So everything that you see around you, the earth, your family, the institutions you belong to, the city you're in, they say none of it is real. It's all maya. That's the word for kind of illusion or a falseness. And instead, they seek liberation through isolation, poverty, and being completely unattached to any earthly good, to any maya, all of these illusions. And they do this because of their view of suffering. Now, we'll come back to that in a bit, because you cannot, you cannot talk about Buddhism without talking about suffering. So we'll get back to this in a minute. So Siddhartha sees all this suffering from the old age, the disease, and the death. His palace is not going to save him from that future. And then he meets this sannyasi, this traveling sage, this traveling monk, and he realizes how much he has been placing his hope in the wrong things because he sees this sannyasi and thinks, this guy has it, has it much closer uh, to the truth than I do. So Siddhartha goes back to the palace and begs his father to let him give up all of his wealth and position and status. I'm sure a lot of you are like, hey, I'd be a prince. I'd take his place. But uh, So he begs his father. He's like, let me give up this life of a prince. I want to give up my inheritance, give up my place here as future king. And I, too, want to become a sannyasi, a wandering poor monk who's seeking liberation from all of these earthly possessions. And so he thinks he's about to have this catharsis, but he doesn't. He leaves the palace, he enters into the fray that we're a little bit more used to. Of course, in the ancient world, it was much harder. And he uh, establishes himself under the leading gurus at the time. So he studies under the Hindu gurus for six years. And he undergoes these severe ascetic practices, like not eating, fasting for weeks at a time. And then he would sit in certain yoga positions that many of us, so this you know, part of the Hindu meditation, he would sit in positions that many of us could not even reach, but he would stay in them for hours at a time, just extremely uncomfortable positions as he's trying to seek a kind of righteousness or uh, meditative depth. And so between the fasting and the yoga, he thinks through these ascetic practices, I will find liberation. But something is still missing, and he's not getting it. So after six years, he happens to be sitting under a fig tree one day. This is the famous origin story of Buddhism. He's sitting under the fig tree, and nearby is a music teacher. This is 500 years before Christ. A music teacher is giving lessons to a student on the sitar, which is like an Indian guitar. It's in some Beatles songs. You may have, you recognize the sound if you heard it. 
And as this teacher is instructing the student, the teacher says, if you leave the string too loose, this is true, by the way, on a guitar as well, if you leave the string too loose, it won't even make a musical sound. It'll just sound like a metal, rattling, twang sound. And if you tighten it too tight, it will snap, right? So if the string is too loose, it will just rattle and not make music, not even be useful. And if you tighten it too tight, it'll snap. And of all the minor little, I mean, that doesn't seem that deep to me. It just seems like true. But this is the moment. This is the sort of sermon illustration, if you will, upon which the fourth largest religion in the world was born. It's hard to realize after six years of all of these ascetic practices, the fasting, the yoga positions, and whatnot, that he had been winding the, stri the string too tight, that he essentially was snapped. And before, when he was a prince, Nothing was kept from him, and he had anything that he wanted. The string was too loose. It was just metal clanging on metal. There was no real, um, there was no real reverberation able to happen. No music was able to happen there. And then he overcorrected by making the string too tight and breaking under the strain. So he breaks at this moment. He breaks from his previous Hindu gurus and becomes one himself teaching what he called a middle way. So there's been a lot of uh, religions that have kind of marked out a middle way. So within Christianity, the Anglicans have this same phrase for themselves. They call themselves followers of this middle way between Catholicism and Protestantism. Uh, so there's a lot of different uh, religious groups that have found a kind of middle between two extremes before. And so he says he's going to teach this middle way, which is much more accessible to normal people, right? Having um, spiritual rigor and practices and devotions in your life, but not being so ascetic that you're not eating and sitting in the same positions for hours a day. You can't exactly be a normal person who farms their field or keeps up their blacksmith shop if you are sitting in a yoga position for eight hours straight, right? Uh, and so in the same way, this really had a, an effect and a, an appeal on normal people. And so it's in this moment that the lore says that Siddhartha Gautama is seen to have seen the reality, the truth of all things. This earth and all its pleasures and power, it's all an illusion. It's just all imaginary. And he says that he saw the origin of suffering, and even in that origin of suffering, he saw the cure to suffering. So this is the beginning of Buddhism. They started to call this man the Siddhartha. They called him Buddha, the enlightened one. And they claimed that he was fully awakened. He experienced nirvana, which is liberation, freed from any contaminants of the mind, and no longer subject to suffering. And so his community that started following him devoted themselves, it was pretty simple at first, they devoted themselves to Buddha, uh, the Siddhartha, to his teachings, and most importantly, to the Buddhist community, what's called the Sangha. Uh, and so what's really significant there is that they were deeply critical of the caste system. They rejected the caste system that we were talking about and said, no, we will all be more or less equals in this Buddhist community. All right, so we'll move on here. That's the, the origin story of Buddhism. And then Buddhism is actually fairly simple. It teaches four noble truths. And we'll talk specifically about three of them that all kind of go together. And then we'll kind of brush over the fourth because I don't think we'll have time for it. But the noble truths, the first three kind of go together. The first is that suffering exists. Not just like terrible suffering, like when we think of like deep oppression, but also just uh, unsatisfactoriness. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, frustration, unhappiness, uh, transience, impermanence, pain, and sorrow, as well as disease, oppression, some of these deeper kinds of sufferings that we're used to hearing about. So think about this. They say that we suffer 
because of the ignorance of thinking that cravings for anything, whether better jobs, better ideas, you know, uh, success, peace, rest, we suffer because we believe that achieving those things will actually relieve some of our suffering, right? That once we get to that next hurdle, once we accomplish that next goal, that next thing, then we will be happy, right? Then we will arrive. Uh, and the Buddhist says, oh, you poor thing for thinking that, right? Because we've all been alive maybe long enough to know that once you cross one hurdle, you might be thankful for a few hours, maybe a few days if you have a good, uh, a good heart. But normally you just start looking toward the next hurdle. What's the next goal? What's the next thing? And guess what? Those hurdles get taller as you go. They get harder to accomplish each time uh, that you pass one before it. And so the Buddhists refer to this as a kind of suffering, a, a hamster wheel effect, where you're just always trying to accomplish the next goal. So their second noble truth then springs off of this. They say, uh, we suffer because we desire things, right? We desire certain outcomes. And that the origin of suffering is attachment to the things of this world. It's interesting. The origin of suffering is attachment to the things of this world. Now, we wouldn't agree fully as Christians, but there might be some, there, there's something to be said there. You know, 1 John 2.15, I don't have it memorized, but it talks about, you know, the pride of life and the things of this world, right? That the love of God is not in those who are just filled with this, what the King James used to call the pride of life, right? Always wanting more. So that's a, it's a short noble truth, the second one. But again, we'll summarize all of these together in a second. But the second one is that we suffer because we desire things and we don't have the things that we desire. And the third truth is that that suffering can end if we were to stop thirsting for things. Now that word, that verb thirst has kind of been ruined in the last few years. I see people laughing in the back. Uh, uh, so the word thirst has sort of been ruined. So we, we could end suffering if we stop desiring these things, wanting these things, whether we're uh, wanting success or promotion, money. They say your, your goal is to try to blow out this flame, this zest, and this desire to constantly accomplish and strive. So the Buddhists would say, the goal is to keep extinguishing desires to the point, listen to this, you extinguish desires to the point that you essentially wipe out personality itself, that you wipe out your own self, your own personality. Uh, so try to maintain all of those in your, in your mind. The fourth noble truth is basically just how to live an ethical life, and there's these eight uh, practices that you ought to keep up that are not all that different from the ethics of human society. So we won't cover that today uh, because we won't have time. But I wanted to zero in on this, that they teach that true enlightenment is to realize that everything is an illusion, including the idea that you are a person, that you are a self, an abiding individual that will continue on. Buddhists, unlike Hindus, do not believe that when you die, you, this unalterable self, are reborn. Buddhists instead believe that you are reborn, but it's not still, it's not that self, right? That you, that yourself is not enduring like a Christian or even like a Hindu would believe. It's just all an illusion. So they say the faster that you can dissociate yourself from that reality, your desires, your goals, the faster that you can dissociate yourself from what's not real, the faster that you can pull up roots, so to speak, from any sort of meaning or rootedness or institution, the better. A firm commitment to Buddhism in that sense makes you less of a self, less of an individual. And as you try to seek enlightenment, you essentially wait to be absorbed into the overall energy, the overall power of the universe. So 
as I read Buddhism, and I'm trying to give it a fair shake here, it seems like they're teaching you to unmake yourself. And in a way, then, it's the opposite of Christianity. Not that we can't learn great things. I think they're right about a lot of our over-attachments to this world. But it's the opposite of the Christian faith in this way. There's a kind of an irony in Christianity, and I know C.S. Lewis talks about this, that Christianity is always teaching us to be the same. Yet somehow we end up more different because we pursue that sameness. So an irony of Christianity is that we're constantly told to have the same mind that's in Christ. We're constantly told to be in unity with those in the church. And so you would expect Christians to become more like each other as they progress in the Christian faith. You would expect Christians to become, in a sense, more boring and more like one another and more homogenous. And what's surprising, and I'm taking this from C.S. Lewis, and I forget which book, but he makes this argument that in becoming more like Christ, Christians actually become more unique and more individual and more themselves. Even as they're becoming more like Christ and somehow more like another, they become more themselves and more individual in the same process. So chew on that for today, right? How can you become more like Christ and everyone's marching toward Christ yet somehow becoming more themselves in the same way? So I don't mean to be flippant, but I always smirk when I read these Buddhist scriptures because they say that suffering is caused by desires, and if you would just stop having goals and desires, then you, you'd be happy. Now, this is somewhat crude, and I would not absolutely not rec recommend this movie from the pulpit normally, but I wanted to share this joke. I don't recommend it, but I'm just sharing the joke. Uh, in the, there's a movie called Spy, with has Melissa McCarthy. I know Abby is a fan. <laughs> Do you guys know who Melissa McCarthy is? Yeah. Uh, very funny. And she... She jokes about how not supportive uh, her mom was in growing up. And she will quote throughout the movie these terrible things that her mom has said to her. And uh, one of them is, uh, just blend in, let somebody else win. And another is, give up on your dreams, Susan. <laughs> she used to write that in my lunchbox, that's what she says. Like, give up on your dreams, Susan. And it's written in her lunchbox. Um, and I know this is crude and it's not fair and I don't need to make, be making a straw man of Buddhism, but it's kind of the same message, right? Hey, you're unhappy because you have all of these desires and goals. What you need to do is get rid of your desires and rid of your goals so that you're not let down when you don't reach them. And I'm thinking of Spy and this Melissa McCarthy line. It's like, just blend in, let somebody else win, right? It's this sort of homogenizing message. Uh, so I know that's not fair. I would never get up in front of a group of Buddhists and, and say that. But I think there is a kind of similarity there uh, that, <laughs> that you ought to not have goals or desires so that you're not let down. You not, not have these sort of attachments to the world. So they say, the Buddhists would say, that to have a goal or a desire is, is essentially to admit that you're not content. Right? So if you have a goal, it's like saying you're not content right now, which honestly, there's maybe some truth to that. So it's, it's good to be driven, but if you have a goal, you're admitting to not be content. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a writer, some of you know, and I have certain goals for certain kinds of projects I want to carry out. And those things often take years. And it's kind of sad because I, uh, I realize this, I'm sure others of you who are writers can, can also agree, or maybe you've been in a graduate program or college or, you know, big work project, whatever it is, you want to run a marathon, you have this goal that's hard to reach and it's far out there and you won't be able to sort of check it off your list maybe for years. And so you're essentially saying, I agree to be unfulfilled and discontent right now until I get that thing done. Now it's still good to be driven and to do those things, but the Buddhist would argue that to have that desire is to admit that you are not fulfilled 
now and that you are striving and it gives you this kind of permission to be unhappy. Now the Bible tells us to enjoy our work and to find meaning in our labor and to work as if unto the Lord. Now that means working well and improving things within our world and within our reach. We pray, especially if you grew up in a more liturgical tradition, we pray all the time, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. An intrinsic part of our faith is making this place more like God's place, right? A, a, a pillar of our faith is making this world more like God's home in heaven. And you don't do that if this is an illusion. If this is all just passing, if it's all just a lie, if it's all maya, then what is the point of trying to make this world any different? It's all just a lie, and it's all going to pass. But we realize that we belong here in a way. Even though our citizenship is in heaven, we want to make this place like God. So I want to get back to suffering here, that more than any religion in the world, by a mile, including our own, Buddhism is, in a sense, you could say, created or invented distinctly and on purpose to answer the question of human suffering. So most of the great world faiths have an answer to human suffering, but they weren't necessarily created for that sole purpose, whereas Buddhism is created to answer the reason, why do we suffer? And uh, Christians, especially in the West, maybe because of uh, how fortunate many of us are, are not known for having a good theology of suffering. But what's really ironic about this is that Christianity as a faith has a much more profound theology of suffering, even if we're not aware of it, and even if we don't understand it or connect. Buddhism is all about suffering, but Christianity actually has a deeper wellspring of hope for those who suffer. And this is why it's often the privileged middle class who are finding Buddhism to be most appealing, and those who are most destitute in the world often cling so much more closely to Christ uh, than a Buddhist will cling to the teachings of Buddha. So, follow me on this. Imagine that you are in one of the most oppressed kind of states that you can imagine. So think of some kind of slavery, whether modern or somewhat recent or ancient. Imagine you meet, as a slave, imagine you meet a Buddhist missionary who says, cheer up, this is all an illusion. Your suffering, your oppression, is really just caused by a desire that you have for freedom and for peace, but let those go because that desire you have for freedom or peace or liberation, that's just an illusion. So unmake yourself, let that desire for freedom or peace or justice go, and just understand that you are part of this vast cosmic energy. But the Bible says, no, your suffering is absolutely real. This place is real, and you are real, and you matter. And just like the Israelites in Egypt, when you suffer, you are heard. And this is happening to you, this suffering, this oppression is happening to you because of sin. Other people's sin, right? That other people made a choice to sell human beings into slavery, and now generations later, you are suffering because of that sin. And this is wrong. This is what's called oppression. But it won't always be like this. There will come a day when you will be truly free and truly liberated. And the Messiah came in great part for this reason. Did you guys know there are two callings that Jesus has identified as having in the New Testament? He has two reasons for being here. One we're maybe more familiar with, and that's to uh, be a ransom for many, right? He came to die for our sins 
and rise again on the third day. But there is a second calling that he has in the New Testament. And it's in Luke 4. As you guys know, who've been here for years, it's one of my favorite texts. Jesus reads from Isaiah. He has anointed me, this Messiah, this suffering servant. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. And in one of these great mic drop moments in the New Testament, Jesus essentially just like drops the mic and he's like, that scripture is fulfilled in your hearing this day, right? That there's this suffering servant who's going to come and liberate the oppressed and give sight to the blind and set the oppressed free. Guess what? That's here right now with me. And so there, is, there will come a day when people will be truly liberated, truly free from oppression. And that happens in Jesus. And in the new heaven and the new earth, we have this picture. John records for us in Revelation. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So here Jesus is not saying your suffering isn't real. He's saying it is real, but one day it will be made right. And there will be this new heaven and new earth where God, will, God himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And there will be no more death. There will be no more old age or corpses or crying or pain. And he earned a right to say that because he didn't just tell you things to believe about suffering. He didn't just try to rescue you from suffering, but he is the God himself who entered into our suffering. And that's the great difference. Every religion has to deal with suffering. Many of them, especially Eastern ones, say, well, suffering's not real. This world isn't real. Nothing is real. We're just reborn in this constant cycle. Jesus says, no, suffering is real, but I will enter into your suffering, and I will suffer for you, and I will suffer more and better than you can, and I will defeat that suffering. I don't know if you thought of this, that suffering is often just a consequence of sin and death, right? Jesus came to defeat sin and death, and we know that, but suffering is often just a consequence of sin. And so we forget that Jesus also came to defeat many kinds of suffering, which are an outpouring of sin, right? The suffering that is experienced in, say, slavery, the suffering that is experienced in oppression, these are sufferings that Jesus came to defeat as well, here and now, not just in eternity. He is the God who knows human experience and who knows pain. He knows suffering. He knows humiliation. He felt it, and he dealt with it, and he defeated it. He has suffered with us, suffered alongside us, because he is our great high priest. And this is the great difference that Buddhism, Hinduism, and some Eastern religions might say that suffering isn't real. Jesus says suffering is real, but I will go before you in that. I will go beside you, I will go before you as your great high priest and suffer alongside you. And then I will defeat that suffering and bring you to this new heaven and new earth where there will be no more tears or suffering or pain. Let me pray to close us. The way is going to be coming in here in a minute. I'll pray to close us, and then I invite you guys downstairs uh, to enjoy some refreshments. Father, we thank you for being the God who suffers, for identifying with us so much in our humanity that you went before us and you went alongside us in our own suffering, in our own pain, so that those who have faced the greatest suffering, whether in the past or today, and even us as we experience our own sufferings, we can look to you and identify with you that these are not 
unreal sufferings. This is not just an illusion. These are real things, but that you went before us, you experienced this suffering, you know what it's like, but that you defeated sin and death and its outpourings, which often are suffering. We thank you for going before us, for defeating sin and death, and for rising again from the grave. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church, STP, or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.